Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Dario Lanares, who is himself a film critic, uh, academic, and podcaster. He, uh, along with Neil Fox, has been the host of the Cinematologists podcast, and he is currently editing and contributing to a book which studies podcasting and film specifically. It's a wide-ranging conversation. We talk about a lot of different things and it and it's you know it's it's possibly the most meta conversation we've had yet because we talk so much about podcasts and cinema and the interaction between the two and also film culture in the age of social media uh really sort of kind of kind of quite knotty spicy and a word i hate as you will know problematic uh, issues so if you like the episode please remember to like subscribe share Uh, as far and wide as possible i rely on you very much to get these episodes out to as wide a reading uh, a listening audience as possible but before you do any of that let's just enjoy the conversation yeah i mean i think that podcasting can be an evolving criteria so you might start off I think as you did interviewing people who have definitely written a book and there and a book on film obviously um but then if if that becomes more and more if it becomes more and more harder to to get people who have literally just released something and they they want to talk about it kind of fresh 
then opening the criteria to people have written an article or just people want to talk about the idea of writing you know you can expand that as, as much as you want i suppose over time yeah i mean we we've all i've already done a couple of screenwriters and i'd like i wouldn't i i'm quite happy to open it up to screenwriters or to anyone who's kind of like a, as you say like a has written articles or written um you know i, I mean peter bradshaw was on a right. few months ago and he he had actually written a book but the book book was essentially a, a, a compilation of reviews it wasn't sure. like a, a, a previously published material so it wasn't quite what i would sort of consider a film book um but uh but yeah he's such he's obviously such a great guy to talk to because he's dominated the certainly the popular sort of newspaper print print reviewing of cinema for for well, probably a decade or so now yeah i think so i mean i think possibly he's take you know he took over the the sort of philip french mantle in print um yeah as you say sort of 10 years ago um but then it's interesting how the 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 different forms of criticism uh overlapping and i suppose you know we'll get to talking about that so you know you look at somebody like mark kermode who who jumps across you know he's probably more famous for the the radio work and now the podcasting work but then peter bradshaw you know does his vlogs on social media and is on was on the guardian podcast when that was kind of around a lot more than it is now so you know the, this idea again possibly what we're going to talk about today of what is film writing is now a almost a, a sort of uh existential question if you want to get philosophical <laughs> about it you know because, oh, we do definitely yeah, yeah. let's get philosophical indeed um, indeed yeah 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 so yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting thought to think to to think about these ideas of where do we um, engage in criticism and how does the form itself inform the what criticism actually is yeah 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 how, how did you come about where's your what's your sort of beginning in sort of both film and and in podcasting um well it, it, it i've got an academic background really i did my undergrad degrees were in cultural studies um no so my, my undergrad was film studies my masters and phd were then cultural studies which again sometimes it's it, it's a um quite an abstract uh term that to, to define what is cultural studies but i suppose again j just to sort of define that very quickly it it's kind of like a branch of sociology but instead of looking at the data around people you are actually analyzing the things that people produce whether it's you know films or books or whatever so so cultural um the cultural output of people and how that defines how society is understood represented you know and then you can get into things like ideological criticism so how do the things that we see in culture sort of define our sense of presentation of what things are like and then that that, that kind of aligns with things like um, notions of representation like gender and race and class and ability and all, that, all of that kind of stuff so that was sort of my master's and phd background and then um, i was working part-time um, in Leeds at both Leeds University and, and the Polytechnic there, which is now Leeds Beckett University. And I was teaching lots of different cultural studies and sociology type courses, which included film courses. And then I got uh, my first job down at, at Falmouth University in the film department there, which is a combination course. So it's theory and, and practice. And I was doing the, 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 uh, the, the theory side of the course 
And and then maybe I think sort of two or three years later, Neil came down and we struck up a friendship. And, you know, it was around sort of 2014, 2015. And this was the time when podcasting was sort of having its sort of crossover moment. I think a lot of people have written about, about this idea. So including myself. So that idea that, that um, both in a technological sense, podcasting migrated from pods to phones. Mm. Apps came along so you could download immediately the podcast to the phone, um, you know, through through Wi-Fi, and that suddenly facilitated the ease of the ease of listening because there were so many things you had to do to listen to a podcast before that moment. And then at the same time, Serial came along, which was probably the first podcast that was kind of pushed on like late night TV shows as being an event. And the, these two things kind of combined to create or instigate the, the move into kind of mainstreaming of podcasting, which has kind of continued to the point where it is now, where it's it's becoming, you know, in, institutionalized and platformized in a way that's bringing it almost back to the back, the, the criteria of broadcast media that, that radio, TV and, and film are. But yeah, we can talk about those. So we, we started podcasting around that time and uh, yeah, I've been doing it ever since with The Cinematologist. Yeah, yeah. And, and brilliantly as well. I mean, your, your podcast oh, you. is a uh, sort of, Kind of, what's the word for it? Um, well, I mean, it's a it's it's a fun way of getting yourself educated. I would say it's sort of like has well, that nice. has that depth, but it's also very accessible and approachable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's something that we do aim for. I mean, we, we had a lot of influences from different podcasts. Some that were kind of like what I'd call um, borrowing from the, the radio magazine format. So you know, you have your box office top 10 and then your special guest and then movie reviews and that was already out there and then there were other forms of podcasts that were kind of um aping the live q a so they would be recorded live and you know the q a would just be recorded and then obviously we've got our, our history of teaching in seminars the seminar situation is a kind of you know if you think of the kind of uh, ancient greek uh echoes of that where you're all sitting around sort of musing on on what things mean and this kind this kind of thing and then you know obviously that there are pleasures of cinematic engagement related to things like the 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 pre-film anticipation and then the post-film chat and all of these things kind of i think feed into the idea of what podcasts can do and we were trying to bring all of those things depending on the episode because we do change formats i mean it's quite quite different i think to like a podcast like this one which has got a very clear theme and a clear intent when it comes to i'm going to interview people who've written a book so that's that's quite straightforward which is great you know and i think that it feeds the idea of podcasting being aimed at niche audiences but we from the beginning have always been quite eclectic and and ready to uh, change formats and change subjects. I mean, again, at the beginning of a season, we have no idea what we're going to cover half the time. But I think, you know, people sort of, oh, they're doing that this week or, mm. oh, that's interesting. And, and, you know, sometimes it can be quite populist stuff and other times it can be, you know, very unusual or unknown um, films or filmmakers that that we might cover. And that that seems to have worked for us. I, I mean, again, you know, people have told us this is, this is sort of anecdotal, but I've said that, mm. you know, we are kind of unique in the, in the film podcast space in that, in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I remember the podcast I would listen to at the very beginning would be things like, well, I'm, I listened to the slash film film cast 
um, which was an extremely, uh, I think definitely had that sort of mates in a pub feel of a very casual conversation and not particularly um, sort of rigorous intellectually in terms of, you know, the guys would were, were fans, you know, but and I yeah, think yeah, yeah. I don't think they would they would in any way sort of be offended by that. Um, and I always found myself, and because there were three of them as well, it was quite a good one because you could always align yourself with one or the others, and <laughs> yeah, and that yeah, was yeah. Uh, that that also had had that feeling of, of you know mates in a cafe or something. Gotcha. Um, and then you know the Q and A one that you mentioned. That's that's the, there was a guy who did a screenwriting co- uh, podcast. Uh, where he he very much concentrated. Jeff Goldsmith, I want to say. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, no, I know the name. Yeah, 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 yeah. and he and he was big Hollywood guy. He had his own script writing Is that magazine. Script notes. It could be script notes that possibly I, I can't remember. Anyway. He he might well because this was many years ago, so he might right. well have changed format since since I was listening to him. But I just remember he would basically always try to get script writers uh, usually around about release day. And so he would be, and, and often at screenings, often it would be a Q and a that had been organized in Los Angeles. So it was, uh, so that was always good. And then the other one was, um, and again, this is right at the very beginning was film weekly, which was the, the mm. guardian with Jason Solomon's. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that one. And, um, and I, I thought the guardian were absolutely bonkers in uh in in discontinuing that because i it was absolutely my go-to sort of weekly program um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i've listened to commode and and simon mayo but uh, and i and they're great they're fine nothing wrong with them but they are very much you know and now and now the traffic you know they're, they're yeah, very yeah, much yeah. catering to that audience and so there's a limit to how kind of highbrow or lowbrow you can be you have to be very middlebrow yeah i mean they, they've been extremely successful and extremely popular and you know i listened to them in you know may, maybe earlier on in their incarnation the first sort of 10 years because what what was really interesting about them again i think they're formative for podcasting particularly in the uk not necessarily just because of the content but because they were the first show that i can remember where it was like it's on a Friday afternoon. I think it used to be Thursday and then it changed to a Friday afternoon, two till four. And I couldn't listen because mm. I was working, but then they were, they were remediated. So this is what one of the elements of podcasting, what it does, it allows radio shows to become remediated and you could listen to them later on. And then obviously, you know, we take that for granted now, but the idea that you, that, that you would listen to something not at the appointed time is actually still quite a new phenomenon. You know what I mean, and and it it's led us into this this um, era where we we curate our content as much as anything else. So it's a labour that's involved in defining what we want to listen to, and we have to find ways. And lots of people have different ways of doing that. You know, still the most important one I think in podcasting is recommendations. But now with the with the development of apps and different types of li- listening apps there is this sort of move to solve what's known as the discoverability problem um, in mm. podcasting. And that's been exacerbated by the fact that, that you know, you have the, the, the gatekeeping that takes place with big tech companies buying up talent, you know, so you think about Spotify now, you know, and previous to that, um, the different individual media companies. I mean, New- Luminary was this first company that wanted to be the Netflix of podcasting. So mm. there's this kind of like move back to a, a, a sort of channel 
uh, structure when it comes to podcasting, when originally it was just like a free-for-all, you know, even Apple, the, the, the interesting thing about Apple was they didn't produce anything and they didn't, they weren't interested in that. But with iTunes, it became the conduit through which um, podcasting kind of emerged as this in, independent medium. So it was really weird that you had this huge um, corporate entity that weren't actually interested in monetizing the content at all. All they're interested is the is st- selling the hardware. So that allowed, in a really weird way, uh, a, a sort of arena for independent and experimental work in sound that they weren't touching. They weren't trying to monetize. Just like, yeah, put put your work up there. But suddenly now we've got to the point where it's gone back. It's going back to a much more sort of channel broadcast focused kind of approach when you think of the money that's going into it from from big companies do you think i mean there's an element of um you know yeah uh, uh, gatekeepers uh, and there's also an element of you know i haven't got time to to to, you know i haven't got time to commission my own uh you know entertainment and cultural needs I, i i kind of i like I grew up with three TV channels yeah, uh, yeah, and, and I was fine. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. There was some, you know, Wednesday night, tomorrow's world and there wasn't much else on, but it, it, we managed. Um, I, um, I know that's more problematic when it comes to things, as you say, like diversity and representation, which you mentioned sure, right sure. at the beginning, but um but kind of, don't we need gatekeepers? Don't we need, I mean, isn't the argument not against gatekeepers per se, but who the gatekeepers are and what the criteria they use? Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, and but gatekeepers are always going to come from a, a specific ideological position. So if it's the, like, for example, if it's the BBC, you know, you can say that, they're, that, that they've, over the, their history, have done, <laughs> I don't know how to say, you know, because it is, you know, you can criticize it. They've done a good job of trying to, in, um, embody that that Reithian kind of approach, you know, the entertain, educate, uh, inform type idea. And, you know, you look at the comparison, do, do, is that better? Is that sort of having one body do all of that? And you have to t- sort of understand, to understand British culture, you'd have to watch the BBC to, to sort of get, because they're so intertwined, the idea of ourselves does, does come through this one body. Is that is that better or worse than, say, the, the American model with, with NPR or, you know, the, the public service broadcasting, and w- which is much more diffuse and, and has, you know, all of these different types of individualized, atomized um, or entities within that, and there isn't one thing kind of pushing... A, a specific agenda and you could argue that there are pros and cons to each of each of them and then you look at other in other areas you know most most countries in europe have a a public service broadcaster of a sort and how much does that reflect the um the prevailing government's needs if you you know if you want to put it that way and obviously you can push that to the far end when you get to propaganda and authoritarian regimes controlling the the media um so gatekeeping is always uh, an issue, and you know the, you also have the, the the problem of now, especially in the internet era, where we we tend to see that there is this atomization, this is fracturing of where we get our content from. That if there is if there is no gatekeeping, it, it's kind of like out of control the notion of where content comes from and where it goes to, and you know just the fact that the the internet is 
open source and was designed that way has led to the, the, the problems of things like privacy that we've got now and 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 the the issues with issues with the sort of neo-feudalism in terms of you know the thing that the, the thing that garners the most listens or the most um uh, ha, ha, people are attracted to most is mm. is controversy essentially mm. so because there isn't that filtering process that you're talking about when it comes to when it comes to gatekeeping so you know there is pros and cons of, uh, around that and you know we could talk about things like canonization as well which is a, a, a key thing you know I'm, I'm just sort of i've just filled in my sight and sound top 10 poll and again oh, they're trying to, they're, they're, yeah they're trying to diversify that out you know and but again that is a process of kind of gatekeeping or, or setting a canon of what what they consider to be the greatest movies of all time you know which I, is I, process I, to go through I think it's going to be very controversial when they bring that out. I think it's going to be this time round. You mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be it's going to be really, really different from. I think it will be yeah. the last year, just because of the number of people they've they've lowered the bar so much that I I was involved as well. Yeah, like, yeah, how, yeah. how ridiculous can you be? Um, and and when I was, I, I mean, it's in that's a really interesting. Because uh, I've had conversations with quite a few writers and quite a few people who have been um, uh, have been preparing their top ten, and the the very idea of a top ten is just I mean I I it's made joke, I it? made a top a hundred for yeah. Letterboxd for, for for my students just to say you know here's here's a hundred films that I think are really worth watching if you're interested in film you know if you're interested in uh, and that I love that that you know. Not not definitive or anything like that, but just from my personal point of view, and already that list has is now 120, 125, and yeah, I'm, yeah. and I looked at it last night and just thought actually I I should add some you know there's no so and so in there there's no such and such, um, so ten is is just like yeah it really is almost random it's 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 yeah, yeah. It, it really how what were, you, what were your criteria what criteria did you use for choosing yeah, well, what I tried to do was think about films that were formative to me, mm. but also I could die on, die on a hill saying that they had some kind of major impact on, on cinema, historically or aesthetically or in terms of industry. Um, I'm not, okay, I'm not going to ask you for your 10 films because that yeah, would yeah, obviously yeah. be... But which film do you feel you will most likely have to die on that hill? <laughs> which was the one um, that you chose and you thought, yeah, this one is going to be a tough argue. I mean, I can do it, yeah. but it's going to be a tough. Yeah, that's that. That's a that's a tricky one. Um, I mean, I can, I can give you mine, by the way. Go on, so, yeah, go, you go first. Let me. Oh, okay, mine. okay. <laughs> so I. This is where my bias. Uh, came in or, or where my criteria sort of shifted a little bit because I was really intent on not trying to show off my film knowledge. And if I have mm. one weakness as a, as a critic or a viewer or, or one, one attribute that could be perceived as a weakness is that I tend to just like a heck of a lot of stuff. And, mm. and if you ask me what's my favorite film, I mean, it would, generally hover around Casablanca or 2001 or, you yeah, know, but, yeah, but, yeah. Ve but not like, Oh, that's a surprise. It's like, well, that's a lot of people's favorite films. Um, so I decided I would try to, to lean towards recent films, even though I have, you know, I mean, my favorite films are usually 
1930s or before, but I would try to lean towards more recent films. So this is a long-winded answer, but uh, I was thinking of Lawrence of Arabia as one of my top 10. And then I thought, well, what's a kind of, what's a more recent film, which is in a similar sort of boys adventure, epic scale, grandeur, historical period piece sort of thing. Uh, And I thought, well, I really, Master and Commander would be the film, the film that I would, and and one of the other things I wanted was a film that if somebody said, do you want to watch this right now? I would say yes, you know, without hesitation. Uh, And there's only one exception to that in my list, but uh, um, so which is Shoah. So just to be, just okay, to be, right. uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just to be completely, I, uh, completely frank. I've got an equivalent of Shoah. It's not Shoah, but I've got an equivalent of that in my list. Which oh, right. People will be like, "All oh, right, okay, okay." <laughs> um, so Master and Commander is the one that I thought this is the one that people will go. Well, you're not taking this seriously, you know. Right, I, I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think there's one in my list that I would say is, you know, what people could say. Oh, well, that's just frivolous. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> Um, which I don't think, I mean, Master Commander was great. I mean, I, I actually watched that on a plane and it was the perfect environment because with the turbulence, <laughs> and I, it was like a physical experience watching it. So it was great. Um, but yeah, I, th- I well, I suppose there's, there's, there's a couple of answers to that. I mean, one, I'll, I'll give one of my films is, is Holy Motors, which is the Leos Carax movie from, uh, God, is it? 2008 I think now it's just gone out of my head when he, when he made that but I suppose that no it's it's about uh, 2012 I think yeah, it's, right it's yeah I can't recent. remember suddenly off the top of my head no um, no it's fine it, it's uh it's a film that I, I watched at a festival not I've never even seen a character movie before and it was just kind of like oh this looks really weird and interesting I went in and just kind of blew my mind in a way that I couldn't focus on anything Everything else that I saw at that festival was just crap (laughs) in comparison, just because it just did so much. And I suppose, though, that that you could say here is somebody who is um, using a lot of surrealist and abstract um, kind of thematics, but then drawing, drawing on his cine literacy somebody who's very much kind of interested in the history of cinema and then it just at the end it kind of goes off the reservation and this is the kind of movie which i like where i want i want to be in a movie one day where everybody the the audience is full everybody walks out apart from me because i know it's a masterpiece you know what i mean that (laughs) that sort of self-centeredness and i think it's the it's the kind of movie where 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 and you know quote unquote again this is really sort of reductive but an ordinary film goer would be just kind of like what is that? And I think that's the interesting thing. There's, I mean, I was listening to a podcast where it, they weren't film people. And they were just talking about, oh, I'll go. Uh, I don't want to go and see that. Why, why would I go to the movies when I can just sit, it, sit at home and watch it? And I think that, you know, people who are very much cinephiles or define themselves are a very different breed than ordinary film goers. And I know that's kind of reductive, but I, I think it, there is something to that. And that's the kind of film where, you know, an ordinary film goer, a lot of the time would be like, you're just, this is just insanity. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, and I think you could sell like, say for example, very close to my top 10, but not in it, not in it was Jaws. Because Mm -hmm. I think Jaws is a seminal film 
for various reasons on various criteria you can talk about industry you know it, 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 even before star wars it was it was the blockbuster summer movie it, it kind of designed that you know it's it's a film that took a lot of classical um hollywood uh, aesthetic ideas and structural ideas and then you know add into that the sort of hitchcock element of it you know and 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 sort of announce this idea that you that here was a return to these these sort of fundamental old hollywood notions of storytelling that were being you know projected onto contemporary filmmaking it back back in the in, in the 70s you know after the the era of new hollywood so it's it's it, 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 that that could easily be on my top top 10 list but yeah i mean it's impossible to what, what, narrow it down what sort of disc was it disqualified just because well i just don't have room i'm yeah, not willing I mean, to it, give up anything to put it in yeah I, I, again it's just it's just about room I, it, it's mm. interesting because it's like i did a little bit like you it's kind of like how many how many films could i put into the mix let's say of what mm. could be on the top 10 and mine was a lot narrower than that i mean it's interesting you saying i think neil, like neil who i podcast with he's quite similar to you in in, in that he loves a lot of stuff mm. right? and mm. i'm much more i i try to 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 be much more kind of clear about why i like something not, not not that you know that you guys are not but it's kind of like yeah i like it but it's not going to get anywhere near a sort of top 20 or top 50 that I like. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. I had, I probably had about between thirty and fifty films that I would consider for me, and then added in that extra criteria of I, I, I could argue for this being important in in movie history in some in some way. Um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a real difference to be made um, between uh, enjoyment and and something yeah. being actually good. You know, yeah. I mean, I, there's a lot of shit that I love. And there's lots of stuff that I think, uh, you know, I love for nostalgic reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you watch them sort of in the cold light of day with the lights on, if you like, yeah, and yeah, you, yeah. then you say, well, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I think this is an example I might've brought up in the past, but like James Bond movies, I really love James Bond movies. I yeah, have yeah. a great time in them, but they're, they're almost without, with only very few exceptions, they're almost all terrible as movies. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting because I mean, I was just interviewing um, someone for a for a book that I'm doing on podcasting, and it was ah, basically somebody who's writers doing... on film episode yes. two. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> yeah, well, this is an edited book, so I'm not writing the whole thing. So oh, it's, okay. it's kind of, ed but I have got chapters in there, so you know. Um, but th they are a, a fan podcaster, mm. and you know that that they're. they're I was, we were talking about their PhD project, which was on Doctor Who and Harry Potter fan podcasts, basically. Right. So it was on this idea of, it, it was on the idea of, of podcasts being, and fan podcasts particularly, being a sort of new form of pu public pedagogy. So people learning about things like politics and race and gender through their love of these shows, right? And then podcasting about them, right? Um, and, you know, that that researcher was very much from the wing of thought of everything is subjective there is no good and there is no good and bad you know like because i i would argue you know i can't watch Do doctor who and they, that, this is why it was an interesting conversation because i respect what this person was was saying but i can't watch it because and the criteria for why is i i, I you know i 
I don't feel it speaks to me as being an older adult. I think you know right. a lot of like young adult fiction and young young adult adult TV. It's not I, because I kind of, it's not because you were traumatized by it as a child. No, no, not at all. No, that's not, my not reason. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, <laughs> I, I'm, it's not my it's not my cup of tea. And also, I think that there are one again. If you're if you're defining criteria of good good and bad, I think sometimes my way of doing that is to say, is this formulaic? Is just this just repeating something that I would expect to see? And therefore, that would be my, well, I've seen this before. It's just repackaged. And, mm. you know, you could argue that most art and culture is repackaged forms. But it's interesting. I mean, I don't know. What do you think of that question? Do you think that there is ever a kind of objective, a possibility of saying this is objectively good and this is objectively bad? I would argue that it's, I would argue that there are sort of, um, that I would try to get away from the binary of objective sub subjective and just sure. and say there is objective there's subjective and there's a subjectivity that we all agree on and there's a right. sort of there's a, a a consensus in the same way you know um we agree on the meaning of certain words and so sure. even if we even if there's nothing uh you know um there's no gold that is behind the promise promissory note of our discourse yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then that that note still has value if we all agree it has value. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I think we can talk about things. I think uh, I think there is a there are convincing arguments uh, to do on on various levels. I think you can argue um, on a level of basic competency. Uh, you know, I think yeah, you, yeah, there yeah. are certain films you can look at and you can just say that's badly edited. It's badly made. It does mm. it does things which are incoherent but not in a way which is intended or creative. Uh, well, leave aside intended. Let's just say creative so we don't get into that. Um, I think you can say the same thing on a, on a sort of moral ground. I think there are certain um, ways of, of seeing things which um, are, are immoral. And, and again, similarly to what we're talking about in terms of aesthetics and taste and, and mm. whether something is good or bad as a work of art, Likewise, good and bad as a morality is uh, is something which I would try to use a sort of tri tripartite system mm. of thinking about, rather than just simply, you know. I think the the thing that oh, it can't be objective is a bit of a straw man. I think we there are plenty of things in life that there is no objective out there in the reality. If human beings didn't exist, it wouldn't it would still exist thing, you know, yeah, right yeah. down to the basics like color and sound. You know, yeah. if 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 everybody disappeared, there would be no more color in the universe because color is is not something which is out there. It's it's about our uh interaction and interfacing with with something that is out there. So without that one ingredient, then the whole the whole concept falls to pieces. So so in that sense, I would argue very much and, and the, the, the thing about that kind of consensual consensual subjectivity, I mean I don't know if that's a phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway, is that we have to talk about it as if it's objective. Yeah, yeah. There has to be an aspiration towards the idea that 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 this sets up itself somehow as being available to be read by yeah. a, a group of people who can then agree on on what it is but then but but the problem i mean again you know i don't disagree but but also there is the the counter argument that anything then gets produced is a product of the the, the conditions and the people who produce it so so therefore 
and anything that becomes available to be read is only available to be read within the the, the context of the society or the time that, that it is. So like, say, for example, just as a, a quick example, I know that was a bit sort of abstract what I said there, but the idea that, you know, at some point, jazz was considered a lowbrow form of art and now it's super highbrow, you know, or, or opera is the same, you know, and there, you know, you get this idea of films that come out and then later on they're, they're reappraised in, in different contexts. So that, that adds to the idea of, it just depends on the, 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 the context in which they emerge and then they, the context in which they evolve into. And also the, the, as, as I, I sort of said there, the sense in which whenever something comes out, it's emerging out of a context of people who can make those things. So, you know, the, the critique of a lot of, of the canon is that it's very white and very male and very straight. And those are the stories that, are, and that's the issue with the, the, this site in St. Paul. So whenever then you're trying to set up what your consensus of subjectivity is, as you said, you're always beholden to that sense of, yeah, but but there's only a certain group of people who are allowed to have that conversation of subjectivity, you know, in the past. So it's that that you know, that it's always going to be a difficult thing, I think. Yeah, I I would I mean I would counter that by saying that um, the the influence of sort of you know it's the old Marx idea of the ruling ideas of any epoch of the yeah. ideas of the ruling class, and so it doesn't have to even be the government; it can be elites, it can be whatever. Um, that's kind of true but it's also kind of countered by Marx himself with his sort of looking at hate coming from Hegel and and the idea that everything has within itself its antithesis so mm. you know yeah, cap yeah. capitalism has creates the very instability which will destroy it um or or transform it yeah 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 you know I mean it's not it's not it's doing pretty well at the instability bit not very well at the revolution at the moment yeah, it yeah, has yeah. to be said uh, so I would argue that it's just much more complex than the monolithic. You know, so going back to something like the BBC, yes, the BBC might have these, the 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 DG might have a certain set of affiliations. The the people around him might all be ex educated by Oxbridge. You know, we have. You know, I mean, I love someone like Marina Hyde in, in The Guardian sure, and her sure, critiques, but she's absolutely establishment, you know. Yeah, of course. You know, she used to write for The Sun for crying out loud. Um, so so you have these, uh, you have this, this uh, as you say, sort of establishment, or you have this uh, ruling ideology. But having said that, once you get on the field... Once you get on the into the mud of actually talking about it, arguing about it, then it is it is incredibly uh, exciting and invigorating about how people get listened to because of the originality of thought and because of of they have new ideas and because they have and and in its attempt not to be propaganda, not to be purely um, a mouthpiece for 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 the powers that be then there is plenty of room, maybe not enough, maybe we've always got to be fighting to get more, but there is room for really original, interesting, oppositional, critical voices to come out. Mm. Um, I would argue that the idea that jazz or opera is uh, sort so, so elitist is a very superficial... Um, I, don't, I don't mean your... You, you know, I just mean... Even that idea is really, really superficial, and you only need 
to investigate it slightly for that to break out. And I'm coming from a working class background and yeah, I yeah, love yeah. jazz and I love classical music and I yeah, always yeah, yeah. have done. So it, it, it took me five minutes of listening to Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and John Coltrane and then that going off for me to go, oh, this is for me. This isn't elitist yeah, yeah, at yeah. all. And the same thing with Puccini and Verdi and opera. Um, so I would argue that those... All those arguments, I've I've sort of gone with my uh, I've I've heard and I've I've I I to some degree think there is is validity in them, but I think they're too um, they have too much of a, a view of the universe and creativity as systemic, and yeah. and you know we're looking at well I mean Marx will say this as well the infrastructure the superstructure and all this sort of, and it uses it, you know you can tell who people are by the analogies they use mm. and they use these analogies which are very inorganic and very um, you know yeah I mean solid I, sorry go on I've been no no I'm, no I, t I, 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 t I totally agree with that and I think that you know it's it's half the battle today you know in the culture that we're in being able to look with the kind of pure eyes at the work you know what i mean yeah with an acknowledgement of where the work has come from yeah and how that could make it problematic you know it's the it, it's i it's the ideology versus aesthetics argument it's the separate the artist from the art argument which i think it, what's interesting about what you've just said there i think that we've moved into a place where it's not it's not kind of like elites or governments telling us what we can't or can't like it's like I say, sort of groups of tribes these days, you know what I mean? And again, I don't want to sort of, um, I don't want to kind of say that it's problematic that we shouldn't reflect on what we see. <laughs> we definitely should and say, okay, well, this is problematic for the, for these reasons. But I think, you know, we have to engage with things like, you know, what is the intent? What do you think? What, when it comes to what, you know, assessing whether something is good or not, what is the intention? Is it doing what it what it sets out to do you know like, like you could watch the wire and say that's the greatest television show of all, all time and add a load of aesthetic and uh, thematic and cultural criteria to that to, to make that argument but then you could what you know the people who watch love island and say well this is wonderful stuff because it, it actually feeds something to my experience and I get joy and pleasure out of it. You know, we, we can't forget about the idea, of, even as, as critics, that the idea of joy and pleasure within, within the work. And then, you know, what's, what's so interesting, I have this, this lecture that I give to the, the students at the beginning, you know, when they first come in as film students and you're always diff different types of film students and they all want to sort of um, establish themselves as having a kind of kudos within the group you know yeah um, who's, and, the, and, who's the john bender of the group yeah, basically well, that, well it's that kind of thing but it's also kind of like who's whose values in terms of their what they like in cinema is preeminent so i'll put up you know you put up a slide and say okay which is the better film 2001 a space odyssey or the, the hangover part two and that's feeding into that dichotomy of what is better and, 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 you know, what is good and what is bad. But then you could, you know, you could watch The Hangover Part 2 and unlock some, you know, very uh, profound ideas about the human condition. And you could watch 2001 and think, oh, wow, this is a cool space movie. Do you mm. know what I mean? So it's mm. kind of really interesting how that, that sense of coming to the work of art itself is a, a, a sort of process that we have to engage with 
Um, because that, feed, that feeds into the way that we make hierarchies, I think, as much as the work of art itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that that that's a really good point. I think the idea of of hierarchies is um, is where I don't see is where I think you know it, it's that argument again. I think I used this idea with uh, when we were talking about gatekeepers. It, it, are you are you upset with the very notion of power or are you upset because you don't have power <laughs> uh you know i mean uh, and the same uh, for me i'm not hugely keen on the idea of hierarchies the only useful thing that i can see coming from that is in the sense of recommendations and and so and, and negative recommendations don't waste your time this isn't this isn't any good um i i mean i i <sighs> It, it is really, really interesting, and I think this is is something that I feel as a, especially as a, you know the old white male chis uh, straight guy. I'm not, although working class, which you know obviously gets dropped out of the conversation because that's the last thing anybody wants. Which it to shouldn't, talk about. because I'm the same. It's very no. important. I think it's I think it's extremely important. Yeah, at, the, at the at the at the fear of engaging the Roth of you know of the culture, it's possibly more important than than other because you know when your economic situation really does underpin all of the other kind of I, I, identity oppressions that you might you might experience. I you know for me again, it's that's easily countermanded. I think. For, by somebody who's got a different experience, but you have to admit that you know if you're if you're black, if you're rich and black, you'll have a different experience than if you're poor and black. So you know, yeah, I think those things have to be taken into account when you when you consider the idea of where people's positions are. Well, you only have to look at the upper echelons of the Tory Party to to yeah, see yeah, yeah. that there's absolutely no contradiction in being um, a person of color or gay or uh, or a woman and having you know and, and being an complete elite position in society yeah, precisely yeah yeah um but that but but we digress <laughs> or do we i don't know i'm not sure um but yeah i'm more i'm kind of more interested in a conversation in which i'm enthused about stuff but i'm i recognize that my enthusiasms are not necessarily um relatable to, to a lot of people so uh, and not necessarily based on shared criteria and going back to also what you said earlier about people the, the difference between say cinephile audiences and and more general audiences if you like i'm really interested in how i i think there's a real validity in um I overheard a conversation recently where someone said, oh, "I, you know, why would I do that? Why would I read that book? It's it's depressing, you know." Mm. And I just thought, "Yeah, that's absolutely valid, you know." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And and I also I love horror movies, but I know people, including critics, who who don't like horror movies not because of any snobbery, but because they dislike being frightened. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and that's uh, it. Uh, I mean, there are movies which are, uh, are disgusting. Like, um, uh, what's the name of the Italian guy who's always disgusting? Um, Fulci, right? You know, his his films aren't just scary. There are moments yeah, yeah, of real. Pretty... Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Um, Pasolini, obviously, with uh, with Salah. Um, I can understand someone saying, "Look, I just don't want to watch something that's that's, that's going to actually." 
even potentially make me physically sick. Sure. Um, I don't know where we put that in the critical conversation necessarily, but I'm, I think those things are valid to, to say. They don't necessarily, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the issue for me is those things have a right to exist. Right. Even if I don't like them. And I think that we're in danger both, ironically, from the right and parts of the left, I think, where there is this sense of this doesn't conform to a certain ideological way of thinking. And therefore, it shouldn't exist. Not, mm. I disagree with it, and here's why. But, you, you know, you have the right to say it. I mean, we're, again, it's such a minefield now because, you know, of course, we're in this era where a lot of stuff is put out there intentionally to misrepresent, to lie. And I think now we're getting honest. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, works of art or honest intentions or and honest critiques being lumped into that idea of, oh, you made this in bad faith to, you know, to upset me or to to counter to my particular way of thinking. And therefore you're a bad person for doing that. And this thing shouldn't exist. I think there is a lot of that out there right now, which I think is really problematic. I mean, just back to your sort of that, that gatekeeping question in terms of, you know, your podcasting and, and ours that I think that we share that, that attitude. And what's interesting, like say, for example, on the one hand, I don't think you could say that, 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 us on the cinematologists are gatekeepers in the fact that we don't have a we don't have a big house to to, <laughs> to, keep, to have a gate in front of you know we're not the BBC so they are gatekeepers answers but however as you said there we're similar in the sense that there is a there is an expectation of a certain type of uh, understanding or at least an openness to engage with it right um, and if you're you know, if, if you're just after fun banter for half an hour about the latest Marvel movie, you're just not going to get that. And that's our, perhaps, you know, you could call it elitism, but I don't see elitism in a, in a bad way, but it's just a sort of sense of, we want to have a conversation in a certain type of way, and we want to engage in culture and certain aspects of culture in a certain type of way. And that's what, that's what it is. And it's not negating, you know, the, the the fan podcasts of Star Wars or whatever that's totally cool, you know. What I mean? And it's not even saying that where you should come to us for the real knowledge and mm. go over there for your fun. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a sense of these are cultural approaches to the world, and those people who make those podcasts they engage in in culture and and 
have political opinions which are valid and all of those kind, kinds of things. And they see that through that, that particular type of lens. And you could say that, you know, being an, watching French art house movies is, is as much a, a kind of fan process as, uh, as watching the latest Marvel movie. It's just a kind of what floats, what, what for whatever reason it is, ineffable reason floats your particular boat. Uh, absolutely. I, and I, th- I feel that there is a sort of film broization of yeah. of art house to tell you the truth i think there yeah, is yeah, a yeah. I, I find it so there's um uh you know i don't mean to knock anybody else's enthusiasm by all means do but there's a a, a recent trait of there's a girls on tees thing about you know people wearing t-shirts with like you know yeah, yeah, claire yeah. denis written yeah, on them yeah, yeah, or yeah. something like that and i kind of find that sort of um daft yeah i mean knock yourselves out but yeah, it yeah. just feels uh and and the whole discourse around um the whole use of the word discourse for instance the whole uh conversation around you know uh drive my car and and parasite i mean i love parasite parasite was great and but it, the fact that you're celebrating him winning the oscars don't you yeah, think yeah. the oscars are a book pile of bullshit so yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. you can't have it both ways and the uh, and you know drive my car was a, a a really good example of of that sort of being pushed to to its extremes i loved the film i love that director he's amazing he's a great he, he made a a better film the next the year after but but the way they would drive my car was being pushed as this like wow it's you know it should win the oscar it was just like you guys are deluded it's um you know it's you're you're trying to create a thing you know mm. um and i, well, I that's the problem with the oscars rather than what the films represent I think, I, don't, I think you know if you i love drive my car and if it was going to win any awards that's fine with me but my problem is is the idea of you know you you set a benchmark by the oscars which is clearly you know it well first of all it doesn't know what it is these days that's right. one thing it yeah, doesn't yeah. know if it wants to cater to the mass audience or if it wants to consider itself you know arty and in the know and b again it goes back to the the, the sight and sound top 10 the and and You'd have to set up. You'd have to be much more clear about what your criteria is. Yeah, you know? no, I, I, absolutely. But I, I do think it does go a little bit beyond that, partly because of Twitter and social yeah, media, yeah, yeah, yeah. that people are trying to push whatever their their particular enthusiasm is into something that sounds into sort of shapes that, that it doesn't fit, you know? So you have people going, Oh, I'm having a double bill of the Dardans tonight. Here we go. And you're just like, (laughs) what? You know, exactly. You know what? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's about that social media kind of like performativity. Let's say, you know what I mean? Yeah. Of, of, of my, my credentials as a film person. Yeah, but it you kind know? of and and I've, I I probably as, am as guilty as anybody else of doing it. We so have I'm podcasts, not... mate. We can't get away from it. I'm sorry. Oh my god! <laughs> so a friend of mine showed me an advert from from Viz, which today I tweeted actually. Uh, if you're if you're, yeah, you have to go back a few days yeah. uh, to find that tweet now. In the future, when this is you're listening to this, uh, dear listener, but uh, it's it's a, a, a fake advert for a product called Podcast Be Gone, and it's like a spray, and it's like, yeah, is yeah. your husband thinking of, of you know chatting for half an hour with his mate Dave about the political situation? Yeah, 
podcast be gone and you yeah. know or pop some under his pillow or something and i do think that is a uh i think that is the flip side of what you're talking about about the popularity of podcasts is there is there is sometimes an element of like uh, exit through the gift shop where Bans- banksy realizes that the idea that anybody can do art is not necessarily a good thing sure sure and and what's interesting is that that <laughs> if you if people have ever listened to our show, we do reflect on what we're doing a lot. It's kind of like, right. is this any good? In fact, and, and you know, the fact that we're two white guys as well, we, we work very hard to have a lot of different voices on and not be bantery because that yeah. just doesn't interest us at all. But again, it goes back to that thing of if someone could, like I saw somebody tweeting once, look, I'm never ever going to listen to a podcast with a male voice on it again. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But, but, you know that you are you are potentially missing out on hearing something interesting you know what i mean and and i think again that that problematic element of deciding i'm not going to engage with something because already there is a criteria around it i mean i could say like say for example i'm not a huge fan of horror movies right um, and it's not for the fear f- uh, factor yes 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 it's just kind of like it, it, what it is is I, I actually do find that 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 ability to suspend your disbelief and, and that to feed into a sense of your own psyche doesn't kind of work for me i'm just kind mm. of like well it's just somebody you know behind the window and you wouldn't go don't walk out there on your own that you wouldn't do that you know what i mean that kind mm. of kind of thing however you know I, like the use of the the use of the horror tropes to undermine and play around with genre, I think is really interesting. I mean, I love a ghost story. One of my favorite films of the last 20 years, I went to see Nope the other, the other day, which I thought was really interesting, really imaginative playing around with, 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 with generic iconographies and conventions and, and, and what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, but I, that this is, this is what's a little bit, um, and yeah, we don't want to go into a, you know, it's political correctness gone mad, but there is a, a, a when somebody says I'm not going to listen to a male voice anymore. That's just silly. That's just daft. You're making your own argument. Uh, you're, you're you're becoming a straw person for other people who oppose your ideas for worse reasons. You're giving them a gift. You know, it's yeah, yeah, wrong yeah. from a and it's wrong from a. It's just daft. It's just like saying I'm not going to eat. You know. Even more than that, it's undermining the idea of progressive politics. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, because at the end of the day, I, I'm a progressive. And, and like, you know, I'd like to consider myself, quote unquote, an ally. Maybe I'm a bad one. Right. But, you know, I'm still on the side of, you know, absolute equality of opportunity for everyone, not necessarily equality of outcome because i think equality of opportunities more leads to you know at least hopefully a more you know a meritocratic art world or educational system or whatever you might say now some people might say that's totally naive because with thousands of years of oppressions then you have to debalance it the other way so to speak but but i think that we should be able to to like you you've sort of articulated there almost look at what we what we see out in culture with innocent eyes and it sounds idealistic and it sounds wishy-washy but at least to have good faith when we engage with our or engage with somebody else who has a conversation i think that's one of the big problems is you know from both perspectives from both sort of left and and right-wing perspectives why we're in such a polemic situation is that people come to a conversation with 
expecting bad faith on mm. the other side. Like you mm. are saying something and it's Machiavellian, it's surreptitious. You are just doing that to try and undermine me. And it's like, no, you know, and, so, and don't get me wrong. There are people who are out there like that. <laughs> yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? For Christ, they're everywhere. That's the problem, you know, that, but that then gets, that's a, a brush that, that is painted to everyone. So every kind of white male straight talker must have this kind of intent behind them. And maybe, maybe it's structural, maybe it's systemic, you know, and there are those issues. We have this privilege that other people don't have, but I think, you know, from my perspective and the way that I talk, there is an intention to be, you know, open-minded and to be accepting of everything. And, 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 you know, on the podcast and a lot of the conversations we have, we actually say where, you know, we've got you on because we're learning. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important, you know? Yeah, that, I mean, that, uh, that, is, that is definitely, anybody who's listened to, to more than one episode of this will, will learn that I am learning uh, from a position of incredible weakness. But I, 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 think that, I think you're absolutely right when you're talking about, um, as progressives, we, and I would characterize myself hopefully in that way, um, what I also probably would characterize myself, I mean, I, uh, I, this isn't necessarily an ideological position or anything like that, but I would kind of go anywhere. I would kind of watch anything, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Same here. I don't see any, I would read anything. I'm, I am promiscuous and amoral at the moment of sort of reception, you know, that I'll, I'll open myself up to all, all sorts of things. I mean, this goes back to sort of, um, I think this partly goes back to the fact that in the 1970s, I couldn't get stuff. So just the fact that it's accessible now makes me want to do it. I'd never, I, uh, the first time I flew, I was 28 years old. So yeah. that makes me want to go to every possible place, even some places where I've been, which have terrible human rights records, for instance, which I've you know, received criticism for, and I'm absolutely uh, willing to engage in those arguments as well. Um, so it just makes me, it just makes me, feel very strange when people are shutting themselves off from that material because my receiving it my um reading the book watching the film watching the video whatever it's not an endorsement and i i and how can i tell how and the other thing just one sorry to but yeah, I, I think we're we're maybe the same age, or probably a little bit younger, perhaps. Mm. Um, late late forties, so. Uh, yeah, I'm fifty. I'm the big five right. zero. Right, um, got a couple of years left. <laughs> yeah, I've I've become a, a code for the police. That's how old I am. All oh, right. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go back to our wire viewing yes. earlier. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the seventies. I grew up a, as a child. I was brought up as a Catholic. Um, we had society for the prevention of the uh, for the protection of the unborn child come into our school and show us abortions videos. Yeah, we yeah. I was very into the Legion of Mary and very into you know I was obviously uh, uh, what would now be considered pro life, but I would call anti abortion. Um, I changed my mind about that. I I had conversations. I had arguments. It wasn't easy. It wasn't immediate. But I, I, I changed my mind. I know the cognitive feeling of thinking one thing with utter conviction, going through a change, and, and getting to the other side. And even though I might think 
this women have a right to choose with the similar utter conviction it is a conviction which also includes the memory of being convinced of its opposite yeah 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 i don't feel that people are willing to undergo those changes or to even to use that knowledge i think it's a good thing that i changed my mind about so much stuff i think it's a good thing that i i have learned because i feel my position is on on more solid ground ultimately mm-hmm. so when i watch um so when i hear about you know people not watching polanski not watching woody allen and and all these arguments all of which have very very separate things but usually get mushed together um i just think when you you have to you have to sort of appreciate to some degree the effect of culture and history on on people's lives and you have to also allow that they might have changed and even if they haven't changed they might still have valid things to say yeah God, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll come yeah. back to the. I'll come back to the sort of beginning <laughs> on, of that in, in on a minute. Part, but... On part three of writers yeah, yeah. on film. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, my view on the whole Woody, let's say, let's just call it the Woody Allen thing or the Polanski thing. You know, that right. sense of there is an artist who has done things in their lives that therefore have poisoned your sense of watching okay that in that case so, let's definitely call it the polanski thing because the okay, woody yeah. allen is still open yeah, yeah, to argument yeah, yeah, yeah. but okay, polanski yeah, yeah. was convicted yeah. no absolutely but again that's one of the problems is that that there is a sort of sense of he definitely did it therefore yeah you know I mean? even with but that's one of the problems you're projecting onto things that actually it's still again you know it's still up in the air what all that actually means it's so complicated anyway my if, if you don't want, if people don't want to engage with that stuff, that's, that's fine. That's entirely up to them. Cause I, I choose not to engage in stuff for loads of different kinds of weird reasons. You know what I mean? But then I also kind of think that you, you have to be aware when you say, when, what I don't like is when somebody is self-righteous about if I want to watch the latest Woody Allen film, I, I'm somehow a bad person. And mm. also the idea, you can turn that around and say, okay, Name me your, like, say, if you said to somebody, name me your top 10 films. I bet if I went and researched all of those top 10 films, I could find somebody who worked on those projects who didn't conform to your high moralistic bar. So, you know, if you start pushing that to just a little bit, you get to the point where you can't watch anything, you can't listen to anything, and you can't read anything, right? So that's my issue with that. So you have to, you have to give, again, it's about good faith. You have to offer the person who wants to go and watch Woody Allen or Polanski, the good faith, or assume that they have the good faith, that they know they have the reasons why they're watching them and they understand the context. Now, you know, the counter to that might be, well, a lot of people don't. They don't they're not self-reflexive in that way. But you still have to offer them that opportunity. You have to afford them that, that openness. I'm sorry, there's no other way, because otherwise it becomes banning books very quickly. Mm or burning books very quickly, you know? And just back to your, the first point there where you're talking about kind of being raised in a religious background and then, you know, having the, that, that opinion of abortion and changing your mind. I think it, it becomes one of the things I think that, that is the irony about the internet and the information age, to use that old fashioned term, is that it has, it has actually led to an embedding of people's British, uh, embedded positions it's led them to kind of like cling on to that like ideas because everything suddenly becomes so open and so poss- uh, you know the possibility of change and the uncertainty means that people want to cling on to certainties and i think that's something that that has happened i like 
you know, I would consider myself somebody again, who would try to look at, you know, not just look at the evidence, but reflect on the perspectives that people have, have about things. Now, it's funny because I come from a completely different background in the fact that from ever, ever since I can remember, I've always been an atheist. I've always been hugely um, skeptical and even kind of anti the idea of spirituality in my youth. You know, I, I, like Christopher Hitchens is one of my great, you know, loves as a writer. And, you know, I was really down with a lot of his kind of quite, you know, fundamentalist atheism for a period of time. But as I've gotten older, I've, sort of come to the realization that actually I do enjoy kind of contemplative sides of life, you know, whether it's just thinking about, okay, you know, what makes me feel good is not necessarily something I can, um, I can conceptualize in a cerebral way, Mm. you know, and that sense of the unknown or that sense of the ineffable is something that I've begun to engage with a lot more and it's not it's definitely not in the aligned with any kind of organized religion but it's definitely aligned with the idea that you know there is something beyond the the immediate rational that we take for granted to define how we negotiate the the world around us you know you know christopher hitchens is up in heaven giving you the thumbs up (laughs) (laughs) i was wrong i was wrong mario you're absolutely right no i mean yeah that's that that's interesting that you you've you've sort of done gone yeah had had a a slightly different journey um although we're probably exactly the same place now by the sounds of it But I mean, I also in terms of like cultural history and and, and context to bring, sort of bring it back to films. There are so many movies that within themselves have sort of despicable sort of scenes or ideas or lines or characters or the people who are supposed to be here. I mean, I remember in the seventies that there was a huge trait of movies where the the um, or, or maybe more the 60s and 70s, where the, the the main male character would proudly say, I'm a I'm a male chauvinist, I'm proud of it. And you were supposed to go, well, yeah, he knows how to talk to the ladies. Um, and that was considered, you know, those were, they, we grew up, you know, if culture and film has any effect, it's, 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 it's in sort of, yeah, reflecting society as it is, but also teaching the people who are coming along and just arriving, this is how you react. This is how you behave. This is how, when a policeman asks you a question, this is how you're supposed to respond. Often those things are inaccurate from an ideological point of view because they're trying to push something. Often they're inaccurate from just uh, art is always fucking inaccurate point of view in the sense that, you know, for instance, life is not terribly dramatic and drama has to dispense with much of life in order to keep our attention. You know, the best example of this is sort of, uh, you know, man bites dog. Um, Man bites dog is a story. So we don't have lots of stories about dogs biting men because that's not interesting. It's the Mm. reversal that's interesting. So you you don't have loads of films in the eighties in which a man stalks a, a woman and, you know, uh, it has a terrible effect on her life and destroys things and maybe even tries to kill her because that's actually what happens a lot in reality. What you have instead is Michael Douglas being stalked by, 
Glenn Close. And, you know, I mean, Michael Douglas was a little bit the Bechdel test for this sort of film. You know, he did the same thing with disclosure and work yeah, yeah, harassment yeah. at work. Yeah. You know, that that you could argue, oh, that's an ideological thing. And it certainly is supportive of a very negative ideological, uh, you know, construct of masculinity and, 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 and misogyny. But it's also kind of the way drama works. Hey, you know what would be really interesting? What if, you know, I mean, you can imagine someone in the 1980s take, looking at the Weinstein affair and saying, yeah, that's interesting, but what if we make the starlet who's really ambitious, what if we make her the villain mm. and make the producer the, the victim? You know, you can imagine, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine that film. It wouldn't be made today, but it wouldn't be made in the 80s and it would probably star Michael Douglas. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is one of the the kind of issues, I think, today, where we, you hear that phrase a lot, it wouldn't be made today. Now, you know, and I, I kind of agree with it. There's a lot of of great and problematic films that wouldn't, wouldn't be made today. And you've got to kind of engage, well, why... What is it about that? Is you know, is it just due due to the changes in the film industry and the economic structures of it? Potentially, I think that's part of it. I think potentially there's an aversion to things that are experimental or outside of formulaic patterns um, because directors and executives don't know how to sell that to audiences. So therefore, you could argue are audiences less? Um, again, it sounds really condescending, but less kind of critically sophisticated you know and, and not even critically but sophisticated in their ability to to enjoy works of art that are outside prescribed formula do you know what i mean yeah so recognizing that, ip yeah and, and, and like you know you got my favorite era of of cinema is the 70s as well and it sounds again it sounds like a cliche and people will say and i agree with this that but there was so much shit that was made in the 70s as well i said yeah yeah that's true but you needed all of that shit to be made for the good stuff to come out. And it was a certain kind of shit. <laughs> shit that didn't have any rules. The problem is today we have shit that is prescribed. You know what I mean? It has to have this, 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 and this. And it has to, you know, link back to other kinds of media that, that you know, it has to have these directs in. And it has to remind the audience of something that they saw 20 years ago. You know what I mean? And it has to have these kind of constructions of, of narrative and exposition so that the audience understands exactly what's going on at all times, you know? So it's kind of like a, it, it's, it's, it, it's like a slurry versus process shit. And I think <laughs> slurry kind of is great because it, it fertilizes creativity. You know what I mean? And you could say the same thing about podcasting and what's happened to that. You know, there was so, you know, there, don't get me wrong. There are millions of, podcasts out there which are just two people wanging on in a really sort of self-indulgent kind of way that's, but there that's, are some really that's just great... that's just rude that you're saying that on my podcast no right no, no but there is and, and but we are that too at times you yeah absolutely, I mean? absolutely but then you know within that as well then that allows for that sort of lack of boundaries allows for experimentation which suddenly something great comes out of that yeah know? yeah now, I, I mean, I, I, I agree with what you say about the cinema of the 70s. It is, you know, I, the shit that happens will always have John Cassavetes in a small role popping up and you'll be like, whoa! And it also, there is the nostalgia of just looking at filmed objects from the 1970s, yeah, yeah. people picking up phones and sort of, you know, going to 
you know, those dynomats. Do you remember those? Where they have food coming from an old yeah, mat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing I would correct from something you said earlier on, and I'm sure it was, was it, uh, I would include Jaws in the new Hollywood rather than say it was coming after. Oh, yeah. The, well, it's, it's new Hollywood adjacent, isn't it? Um, oh, I would say I, it's absolutely yeah. solidly new. Okay. new, new it's, yeah, it's I mean, again, it's... The, again, Nick, the Nixonian paranoia, yeah, the, yeah. you know, Larry yeah, Vaughan, yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I, for those for those reasons, for sure. But again, I think that there is that, that sense of it becoming, in budgetary terms, and also audience, you know, diversity, in, in terms of like the size of the audience aim, I think is... is that's when it starts to move into other areas, you know, mm. when you get to Star Wars and you get to Raiders of the Lost Ark and, you know, and even, I mean, the one, the one film that kind of gets lost in that transitional period, I think is Rocky, mm. you know, Rocky was absolutely fundamental in sort of that moment of the American hero post Vietnam, suddenly being the underdog and coming back and winning out, you know, the, the, the underclass kind of kid, and again, you know, it says problematic things about race. I think, you know, the idea that the the the, the, the champion reflects something about what the white man has lost. You know what I mean? With this black this, this black figure at the top. You know what I mean? There's so many kind of. But again, that that's that's why Rocky's a great movie because you can look at it in in those terms. You know, it offers you a lot to to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's, some of the language that we have to use these days, I think, is partly the problem in terms of you know, the, the linguistic determinism of, of of certain phrases that, that are rather, uh, you know, ironically, uncritically applied by the critical community. So problematic is one of them, where where it's yeah. just like, of course, everything everything is. everything's <laughs> problematic and nothing's problematic. If if yeah. everything is, then nothing is. So. Um, you know, tropes I find as one of those uh, that, that that irritate me. And then there's I, a lot borrowed from there's a lot borrowed from academia as well. Like something like the male gaze yeah. is just applied to any time there's a woman on screen. Yeah, now, you know, oh this this woman on screen is subject to the male gaze. And actually, you have you know, it's being used as simply a, a shorthand. When if you go back to the original text, there's a lot going on there in terms of psychology and the notion of voyeurism and fetishism and cinema as a machine to set to set that up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in, in terms of what these things, as you said, male gaze or turf theory is another. Yeah. Um, uh, recently, I was talking to the author of The Method, um, Isaac... Feldberg, I want to say. Anyway, right. I'll I'll correct it in the show notes. But um, anyway, the author of the method, I spoke, had a great interview with him, and and his book is all about how everybody thinks the method is this, and it just isn't. It's just mm. that's not the method. Yeah, Daniel Day Lewis is doing research; he's not doing the method. That's yeah. uh, I mean, actually, I was uh, listened in on a and A Q&A with. Um, Mads Mikkelsen, and he was asked exactly this question. And he went, no, Daniel Day-Lewis is researching, and that's up to him. But yeah. it's not the method. The method is something else. The method is specifically about sense memory and, you know, uh, you know. So I think there's that, that misunderstanding also. You know, you, when you have a, a lexicon, there's always a danger that those words become ossified and mm. they're no longer flexible enough to accurately you know, describe what's going on in the in, in in something which is so organic and so um you know I think you can talk about it. I'm not saying you can't talk about it or you can't theorize about it or you can't extrapolate. You can, of course you can. But 
it's the minute that you start to really lay down categories and taxonomies as if they are um, they will never change in time. No, no. And, you know, I think a lot of it as well in the last 10 or 15 years is the fact that there is a limitless um, amount of digital space to fill. Yeah. You know, it's last time I was at um, Berlin. I mean, we're really lucky on the podcast I mean, it's not even luck. It's just the way that we're set up that we have we have full time jobs, and the podcast is a kind of adjacent to our um, academic interests, but it's also something we love to do. And we, when we go to Berlin, we're not under any. There's no editor selling telling us you need to watch this film, this film, and write 500 words on. And there's so many like young critics who are out there on their own dime, you know, trying to write, you know, very quick. 500 word pieces, which, you know, great, fine. You, you know, if you love to do that, you want to be a film critic, go out and do, do that. But then, but I, I was kind of amazed when I was looking at the press screen, I was in the press screenings and thinking, my God, how many of these people are actually going to be able to sustain, sustain themselves through writing these, you know, 20, 500 word reviews of Berlin for 50 quid each or whatever. Oh, 50 all, quid? Well, I don't know. I, I, God knows how, how much they're getting paid. Some are get, not getting paid anything. I would, I, I would argue the vast majority are not getting paid anything. Yeah, not, right. Okay. Uh, so, that particular, if you're talking about that age bracket more than anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. So, so you know, there is a, there is a diversity of, of different types of critics that, that are there. Some are unpaid writing for, you know, in, internet um, is the, you know, blogs websites and, and what yeah. yeah blogs and what have you. But then there are some that are getting paid a little bit, and there's some that, that are getting paid depending on the institution they're writing for. But I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, are you all, are you all thinking that you're aiming towards getting a, a, a newspaper column? Because there's like eight <laughs> available, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And those people are going to die before they relinquish those posts. And it's kind of like, I think to myself, you know, where is film criticism going within, within that context? And you know, I have these pretensions sometimes where it's just like, oh, do you know what? I'd be love to quit my academic job and just podcast and just write. And, and it's just like, and then I think about it for two seconds and I'm like, no, that's not going to happen because it's just too, it's, it's impossible, you know? Mm, mm, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, I, I think it's nice to keep your foot in, your feet in two different worlds as well. I mean, sure. I, I'm teaching yeah. at university and I like, I not not so much for the teaching aspect, but for the, student aspect i like the i just like interacting with people who are in their 20s and and yeah, yeah, you know yeah. there, there's so many things that if i stayed in my room and didn't come out i wouldn't you know i wouldn't i would i would have my opinions from that that were based formed in the, the 80s and 90s would would still be applied to a world that no longer even exists you know i mean i'll, I'll give you a very quick example of that is like most of my students when i you know we, you'd go in 20 years ago and you'd say what's your favorite sort of like uh tv show or film or something it the science fiction nerds would be boys and yeah. nowadays the science fiction nerds are all girls because they all watch they've, they've been brought up on harry potter and twilight and Hunger Games. And so the, the number of girls who love science fiction with, with as much, if not more, intensity than the lads is, is 50 
plus percent of the of the people in at least in my obviously I'm just talking about my university classes, yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's a huge shift compared to what it was when I was growing up. It was zero, you know, it was yeah, yeah. no girls were, were into that, you know. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it really has affected that exactly that experience that I have as well. Once I get past all of the bullshit, you know, university crap that you have to deal with in terms of admin and all that kind of stuff. Once you actually get into the room, I'm always reminded of why I do the job. Do you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. And the other thing is, the other thing is, it, it really does, it's changed my kind of teaching practice in many ways. In the last few years, particularly, I've, I've kind of reassessed myself and what I'm trying to do, because I think that I got to the point where I was saying things and just getting blank looks mm. in, terms of, in terms of referencing, do you know what I mean? Oh, this film or that film. So the first thing you have to do is recognize that these these kids haven't seen the things that you've seen yeah, and therefore they don't, they're not informed by it. Right. So therefore you have to say, okay, so what are they informed by? And then you have to, you know, admit and appraise that you have to come to them and where they are. And then the other thing is, even if you don't like, you know, they, they love Marvel movies and they love DC and they love star Wars and stuff like that. And I, I feel like it's not that I don't love them. It's feel like I've grown out of them, honestly. And it sounds again, sort of condescending, but it's just, that's the, I'm looking for other things at my age and in my, in my position, but what, how do you get around that as a teacher? How do you remain a good teacher? What you say is, okay, explain to me why you like that. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? And that's yeah. the thing. And it's kind of like, is it just about, so they might just say, Oh, I just love it. And I feel like this one. And it's okay. So it's about pleasure and it's about a kind of physical experience. And then others will say, well, I see myself on, in this character. And instead of saying what somebody flying around in a spandex uniform, you see yourself in that character. Okay. So why, what is it about that character that you see? And then you can kind of talk about things like, well, this character's kind of explaining their feelings. Have you seen this film where this character has the same feelings, but they don't explain it? It's told visually or it's told sonically. And you can get them you know, interested in the kind of sophistication of filmmaking from their position of where they are. And I think that's the way in today's culture and the way that the content works and it's brought to them. Everything's brought to them instantly. So that you have to go to them where they are rather than sort of saying you know, you don't know anything, mm. come to where I am, where I know shit. You know what I mean? They do know, they, they know loads of shit and they just don't know the, the, the shit that you know. And they don't, they know things in different ways. Mm. So that's where education, I think, has to kind of adapt. I, I, I think if we take that back to what you were talking about, going to the Berlin Alley and having, having your experience of looking and seeing all these sort of 20-somethings or, or young young. Um, critics i was had a, a recent conversation with a, a, a friend of mine who uh, we were in Cannes. i'll keep his name out of it actually so he doesn't uh, get into trouble for this comment but he was we were looking around and of course we're slightly older well, we're twice the age of a lot of these people and i was saying oh um sometimes i find it difficult to engage with these people they don't seem to be as sort of forthcoming or as you know open as i i, I wish they were um no, and that's and it was kind of unusual because usually uh, uh, people I'm quite ha good at having conversations with people, um, despite the evidence. Um, <laughs> and, and and he said, "Well, they're intimidated." And I was like, "Well, what do you mean they're intimidated? They're writing for you know big outlets. How? Why are they intimidated by me?" And he said, "Well, because they haven't seen as many films. You know, they haven't been on the earth long enough. They just haven't, you know." seen 
the depth of films that you've seen. You've, you've you know, let's face it, we watch what three, four hundred plus films a year. Well, I mean, probably five hundred films a, a year, maybe. Um, and you've been on the earth watching films for forty-four years or forty-seven years or however long it's been. You've just amassed a, a body of knowledge that you can draw on, plus books, plus music, plus living through historical time, plus having experiences like the Berlin Wall falling, Mandela being released, mm-hmm. South Africa not being descending into a bloodbath, but coming out as, a, as an operating democracy when you know, nobody predicted that. Um, so this gives, gives a certain depth to your perspective and your outlook, or can do, you know. If you're 23, 24, and yes, you've seen the Darden brothers, and yes, you've seen Fassbinder on a box set, and yes, you've, you know, but you just haven't had time to get the amount of, of stuff that someone has. And you're living in a culture which does not really forgive or, or allow you to just say, I, I don't know much about this, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have to I have mean, confidence to say that as well. Yeah, because you otherwise, I mean? otherwise it's like the imposter syndrome. People yeah, are sort yeah, of yeah. like, oh, I got the imposter syndrome. No, no, you're great. No, we're all fucking imposters. Yeah, you yeah. should have the imposter syndrome. It's a it's a valid uh, psychological reaction to your position in the world and its insecurity. You are an imposter. That's the problem that we're governed by people who don't have the imposter syndrome. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know the worst. You know, are filled with fiery. Pa- the best, like old conviction, the worst are filled with fiery passion, as yeah. Yeats said. Or um, I think he was quoting Shelley, who said it better because he said, "The the the good want power, the powerful goodness want." Yeah, yeah. And, uh, that's well, that's it, that's a very poetic um, example of the Dunning Kruger effect, isn't it? You know, that <laughs> idea of the less you know, the more certain you are. In the, you know, it's and that's the imposter syndrome. It's like imposter syndrome is is afflicting people who know a, a fucking lot of stuff you know, yeah, you know, it, sh- you know. it should be a qualification it's like if yeah, you've yeah, got yeah. the imposter syndrome it means you're exactly where you are you ought to be yeah, yeah, you know for sure. listen dario as you can tell we could stretch this conversation well we wouldn't even have to stretch it we've been cramming it and and it could go on for hours and hours it's been such a pleasure talking to you but i have to ask you one final question sure. which i'm sure you are prepared for Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble with your students next time you demand any homework. What's your favourite, what's your recommended film book? Um, well, I've got one that is a, um, in fact, I've, I've got plenty because I've been reading quite a few film books over time. Um, probably my all-time favourite film academic book is called Camera Politica mm. um, by Douglas Kellner and Michael Ryan. And I think it's about, if you're into 70s movies, it's great because it, it kind of covers fit the 50s to the 70s. And it's basically almost a kind of manual about how to write about film and engage with the um, social and cultural politics of the time. So mm. I would definitely recommend that for, for sure. Just in terms of a great read, this summer I read a fictional book called The Diary of a Film mm. by Niven Govindan. And it's basically a, um, a fictional tale of a film director who is a kind of European art house auteur. And he's ha- at an Italian festival, which is probably something akin to Venice. And he's releasing his, his new film and he's with his two male co-stars. So it's almost kind of like a, I think the film is sort of like a Call Me, Call Me By Your Name type movie that this guy's mm. made. But he encounters this woman 
who is a forgotten writer, and she kind of regret. They walk around. It's all set in the in the days of of leading up to his premiere, right? And she walks around the city with him and reveals her relationship to this artist, and she takes him to this mur mural that her artist ex ex lover before they got married painted because he died and that kind of fueled her entire melancholy and her writing career which was then subsequently forgotten and it's really interesting about and it goes into kind of like the the, the filmmaking process and the nature of how you define art through life and it's a beautiful beautiful book to read when you've got that time on holiday it was just absolutely the perfect the perfect read so yeah, that, that was probably, I mean, I can, I can give you a list of, of, of many, many more, but you know, we've been going on, as you say, for a couple of hours. So those two to start with. Yeah, it, it will be, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess you, you um, and Neil sort of, uh, with the podcast, you're, you're, there's a constant sort of stream of recommendations going on both for films yeah, and yeah, books yeah. and arguments. So it's, uh, I mean, that's what I've loved doing this podcast is, um, you know, the best, reaction that I get is people posting photographs of recently purchased books because they they listen to an episode and they said oh so, I've just so, so. I've just got a this because of uh you know because of the episode and it's like that's exactly what I want I want people to read more books yeah 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 and, um, and J Jason Bailey's fun city cinema fun city cinema table book is really worth getting as well which accompanies the podcast which is a great film podcast yeah it's superb and he he was he did a great uh we did, had a great interview and a great conversation um i think in september i think yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when it came quite, yeah quite some time ago but it was uh, uh he's he's a he's a brilliant guy um and really, yeah, yeah, he yeah. really knows his like stuff. Like on Twitter as well. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there's a there's a sort of um, him and another friend of mine, Glenn Kenny, have uh, have a, a very particular sort of New York. I'm walking here, Twitter. Yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, thing. Do, yeah, 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 that's it for sure. I love it. I love it. It's brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Dario. It's been an absolute joy, and I, I'm looking forward to uh, having future conversations because it sounds like sure. you're going to have a book coming out. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna grab you and and get you back on. Maybe you can have brilliant. you and, and Neil on one of these days, and then yeah, uh, that would be interesting for sure. Um, yeah, because yeah, we definitely, you know, we can talk about more about kind of like dynamics of conversation and that that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, excellent, brilliant. Thanks, Dario. No problem. Anytime. Take care. So that was my conversation with Dario. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we obviously did. I really think we could have taught for like two or three or four hours. I think it just um, there are so many issues there to get to the bottom of. And I really enjoy um, talking to someone like Daria who's so obviously thought about these issues for quite a long time, much longer than my asinine half-arsed uh observations so i i really hope you uh you got something from that conversation i'm pretty sure you did um all that remains for me to do is thank Elliot, Elliot, <laughs> Elliot, 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 Elliot atkins for the music 
and uh, Ali Harwood for the artwork. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be in Venice at the Film Festival. This has been a heavy summer of festivals. I hope you don't think I'm just doing humble brags by this, but it has been enormous fun, so I guess I am doing humble brags. Um, however, I'm hoping to set up at least uh, another two episodes so that uh, the podcast will continue a little bit more regularly than it has done already. If I don't, that's my bad, I guess. Uh, this is the 70th episode, by the way. So uh, my final thanks are, uh, has to go to you, the listener. You have been a constant and dedicated presence. And there are more of you than there were at the beginning, which is always a very good sign. Until the next time, take care.